Good morning, Emmanuel. I am so pleased to be with you on this second Sunday of Advent. This year, during Advent, we are focusing on the prophecies of Isaiah. I am grateful to Lorelai for her proclamation of this morning's passage, which is a beautiful, poetic, prophetic description of our once and coming King, Jesus. It reveals him as a ruler and a judge of extraordinary character and power. But as a standalone, this description is also a little bit like showing you a still shot from the end of an action movie or handing you a resume to evaluate. You could certainly admire the aesthetics or get a glimpse of the qualifications in this passage, but without grounding this portrait in a real place, in a real time, without knowing to whom and why and even when this prophecy was delivered, this portrait is robbed of much of its power. It's just too easy to glance at it, admire it a little bit, and move on. So before we look again at this compelling picture of Jesus, we're going to look at what was happening when this specific prophecy was rendered. While it's true that the revelations of God to humankind often have universal consequences and cosmic scope, it would be a huge mistake to think that God's revelations are generic or ethereal. God moves and speaks and acts in human history. He loves all those that he has made, and he is present and active in the lives of those he loves. This portrait of Jesus meant something particular, specific to those who first heard it. And to understand the promise of this prophecy more fully, we need to know some of the context for it. Now, Isaiah lived about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And at that time, the kingdom, the unified kingdom of Israel had split into two parts two different nations, the nation of Israel in the north and the nation of Judah in the south. So during his ministry, Isaiah spoke the words of God to the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. And our story this morning picks up when a very young man named Ahaz was king of Judah. Ahaz became king at the age of 20 equivalent to a junior or senior in college in our context, and he was immediately faced with a national political crisis. The two small nations to the north of him, Israel and Syria, were making a habit of raiding and plundering Judah, and they were forming an alliance. And Ahaz had to figure out how his nation was going to survive. I'm going to read some snippets of verses from earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, to give a flavor for what was happening. This is from verse 2. When the house of David, that is Ahaz, was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Young, inexperienced Ahaz was thrust into a position of incredible responsibility 
And right out of the gate, he was faced with tough decisions. Israel and Syria wanted Judah to join their alliance, but Ahaz did not trust them. And yet it was dangerous to stand apart from them. Small kingdoms in the Middle East lived under the chronic threat of being targeted by bigger, scarier nations. But the Lord God Almighty saw Ahaz and his predicament. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, this language that the Lord spoke to Ahaz Language like, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. This was recognizable as the type of language that a general might use to buck up his troops before a particularly risky battle. God knew that Ahaz was in danger and was afraid, and God took his fear seriously, and he had compassion on him. So in verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So far, so good. Ahaz was in a tight spot, but the Lord God knew his distress and moved toward him with assurance. And not only that, the Lord offered Ahaz a sign, a visible token of his trustworthiness. God even allowed Ahaz to pick out the sign for himself, whatever he wanted. And this is where things start to go askew in this conversation. Ahaz is the leader of a nation made up of God's chosen people. They have a long, long history of experiencing God's extraordinary faithfulness in tough times. And Ahaz is well aware of the bond that God has with the people of Judah. Nevertheless, When offered a sign to strengthen his faith in the Lord, Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, Ahaz may have framed his response very piously, but basically he's saying, nah, no thanks, I'm good, it's okay. Ahaz may be shaking with fear, but he's already decided that whatever wisdom, counsel, knowledge, whatever safety, security, stability that the Lord God has in mind, Ahaz is not interested in it. He sincerely believes he has better options elsewhere. Well, the Lord does not take offense easily. God shows his own sign, and he offered it to Ahaz. You may have heard this one before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, as with many biblical prophecies, this one sign points to two different events. There is a short-term fulfillment of the sign and a long-term fulfillment of that same sign. And we are, of course, most familiar with that long-term fulfillment. 
The Gospel of Matthew makes it clear that this particular prophecy foretold the birth of Jesus, the anointed one of God. For Isaiah and for Ahaz, that was a long-term prophecy indeed. It would be another 700 years before the first coming of Jesus Christ. But God had a short-term purpose in mind for this sign as well, intended to encourage and strengthen the faith of Ahaz in his time of need. A local prophetess of the time did did indeed conceive and bear a son. And before that boy was old enough to tell right from wrong, within about four years or so, Syria, one of Ahaz's enemies, had fallen to Assyria, and Israel was preoccupied with protecting her own borders. So these two kingdoms that had Ahaz shaking in terror ceased to be a threat to Judah within a few years. But Ahaz couldn't wait for the Lord to demonstrate his trustworthiness. Ahaz had his own ideas about power and his own ideas about the kind of security and stability that he could believe in. He was a pretty conventional king that way. He was a pretty conventional human being, really. Rather than relying on the Lord God, he looked around the surrounding area for the guy with the biggest stick and the most political clout, and he reached out and he made a covenant with the power that both Syria and Israel were afraid of. Ahaz put his trust in the nation of Assyria. Now, we might be accustomed to think of trust as something immaterial or abstract. If I asked you, who do you trust? You'd probably do a gut check of the people you know um, and, and figure out how you feel about whether they're trustworthy people or not. But questions of trust are ultimately very, very practical. The truth about who we trust will shape the trajectory of our lives. We listen to those we trust. We imitate those we trust. The truth about who we trust leaches out into decisions we make, big and small, one way or another. When Ahaz took a pass on the offer to trust God for the safety and well-being he needed, and he put his trust in a powerful neighboring king instead, Ahaz's life became a testimony to that misplaced trust. Ahaz broke faith with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings who loved him, and he made a covenant with a regular, dusty old earthly king instead. And you know, it's possible that Ahaz was kind of okay-ish with that decision he made. We know more details about the story of Ahaz from other books of the Bible, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Ahaz paid Assyria to keep Syria and Israel from messing with Judah, and Assyria kept that bargain as far as it went. Now, of course, protection money has a way of adding up and increasing year after year. And Assyria ended up claiming and maintaining suzerainty of Judah, which meant that Assyria assumed complete control of all of Judah's foreign policies. And scripture tells us that with one thing and another, the king of Assyria afflicted Ahaz instead of strengthening him. 
But whatever Ahaz felt about his forced dependency now on Assyria, it became clear early on that Ahaz was genuinely enthusiastic about the religion and the gods of Assyria and the surrounding nations. From the beginning to the end of his reign as king of Judah, his craving for security spilled out into a positive love affair with a whole pantheon of foreign gods. In fact, the more distressed he became, the more passionately he worshipped anything that seemed to offer him power. Ahaz ruled for just 16 years. He became king at age 20 and was dead and gone by the time he was 36. But here are a few things that Ahaz did as expressions of where he put his trust. He made sacrifices to the gods of various nations, the ones that successfully attacked others. Ahaz made metal images for the Baals and built altars to foreign gods in every corner of Jerusalem, the holy city. He started practicing divination. After field trips that he took to northern countries, he came home and had his own high priest redesign the house of the Lord to resemble the temples of Hadad. He stripped the house of the Lord of its gold and silver. He cut up the holy vessels in pieces and sent it away as gifts and tribute to Assyria. And he lit at least two of his sons on fire as a sacrifice to the god Molech in the valley of Hinnom. Second Chronicles 28 sums things up this way. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. By putting his trust and a lot of money into Assyria, Ahaz purchased a temporary political survival for Judah. But the Judah that survived was gutted spiritually and morally. The book of Isaiah is full of heartbreaking metaphors that describe the shame, the fear, the injustice, and the devastation of the nation of Judah under the rule of Ahaz. Ahaz trusted in Assyria, but Assyria was like a razor that shaved the head and the feet of Judah. These are metaphors for intolerable shame in an honor culture. Assyria was like a river that drowned the northern enemies of Judah, but then kept on flowing south until the people of Judah themselves were up to their necks in the waters of Assyria. And the oppressive, predatory nature of Assyria and her gods infected the people of Judah. They began to deny the needy justice and to rob the poor of their rights. They made widows their spoil and the fatherless their prey. The more trust that Ahaz deposited in false evil gods, the more spiritually bankrupt Judah became 
And in a land where the ruler worships brute strength, the vulnerable suffer mightily. And so the Lord God, in his mercy and anger, judged the wickedness of both Assyria and Judah. In the verses that immediately precede our passage today, Isaiah declares, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the branches with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This is the context into which the promise of a coming Savior is sent. When we put our trust in things that are not trustworthy, we make of our lives a devastated forest. When we cope with our fears by cozying up to predators, we become predatory ourselves. When we empty the house of the Lord of its priceless treasure and worship brutality, we become brutes ourselves. And our life and the lives of those we influence become as a forest hewn down. Now, Ahaz screwed up royally. He put his trust in the wrong thing and led his whole nation into sin. He incurred the just judgment of a just and loving God in real time. And you might think that spitting in the face of God's kindness and dragging a whole nation into ruin would be the end of this story, the end of God's dealings with Judah. The nation of Judah hewn down at the roots, a field of ruined stumps, a scene of utter desolation. But behold, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. When there is nothing but dead, dried-up wood in our lives, the Lord calls forth something new. A slender green shoot emerges. It's not a mighty tree bursting forth fully formed from the glorious house of David, but a small tender shoot coming from the humble stump of Jesse. As the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, a new kind of leader emerges. Into a dystopian landscape, of well-deserved desolation, God sends his servant Isaiah once again with a word of hope. Against all reason, it is a renewal of the promise that Ahaz had rejected. A son will be born. His name will be called God with us. And the fruit of this ruler will be of a kind never before seen on earth. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This coming man, a real person, a real human and yet divine being, when he comes into this world, unlike Ahaz, unlike the rulers of the warring nations of this world, unlike you and me, he has been endowed from on high with wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge, and most especially, the fear of the Lord shall rest upon him, and his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. Ahaz had been tormented by fears. His heart trembled like the leaves of a tree at the threat of war, and in his fear he did foolish things. He believed that his personal safety and the security of his people depended on the goodwill of brutal men and their brutal gods. But this man, this coming ruler, has no fear in him at all, save the fear of the Lord. And the man or the woman who fears no one but the Lord is a person in 100% joyful alignment with the God of the universe. The one who fears the Lord above all else is utterly secure because nothing can separate them from the love of God and the promise of eternity with him. The fear of the Lord is freedom from enslavement to every other type of fear. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This coming ruler is a judge. Like every ruler in the time of Ahaz, this ruler had a duty to protect and provide for the poor of the land. But unlike every other ruler in the time of Ahaz, unlike every other ruler or politician anywhere ever, Even unlike you and me, this ruler actually fulfills his responsibility to the poor and to the needy, making provision and providing justice for them. Sent from God, full of the Spirit of God, having no fear except the fear of the Lord, this ruler is not beholden to any other power. The one who is full of the fear of the Lord is free to act with unimpeachable integrity. Bribes hold no value. He has no need of political favors. There is no voting block he has to appease. He is free to enact perfect justice without corrupt interference. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips He shall kill the wicked. This judge has the authority and the power and the will to nip wickedness in the bud just by breathing. He needs no weapon other than the truth that he speaks. His words, just like just the truth and the justice that he articulates with his lips and his tongue, his words are like heavy rods 
that strike the earth. In the mouth of this ruler, the truth is so powerful that it slays wicked people every time he breathes. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Righteousness and faithfulness are like your great-grandma's girdle to this man. They are the foundation garments of the Lord. This guy is divinely empowered by the Spirit of God. This guy personally embodies perfect justice. And now we see that his rule guarantees absolute safety for everyone in his kingdom. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. This guy blows the roof off of every reasonable expectation of security. Politics human interactions at a personal level, none of that is, it's no longer a matter of might makes right. The small, weak nation of Judah had made her tempting prey to predatory nations. But under this guy's rule, predator and prey, oppressor and victim are alike transformed. No one in the Lord's kingdom abuses power. No one is limited by vulnerability any longer in the kingdom of God. All alike are free to rest and to eat together with no thought of threat or harm. Is there any earthly power that can provide this for us? The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Innocence is restored under his rule. Freedom and playfulness are restored under his rule. All is well under his rule. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, this guy proclaims. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover see. Can you trust this guy? Would you trust this guy? My children tell me that this question is the title of this sermon, Would You Trust This Guy, is clickbaity. And they're probably right. But we are way too prone to regard Jesus Christ as just another guy making a bid for our trust, one option among many, and maybe not even a particularly impressive-looking one. Without eyes to see, without ears to hear, it's possible for us to turn down the invitation to put our faith in the promised one. The promise of God rests on this guy alone. So it's not just a sermon title. It is a live question. Would you trust this guy? Like Ahaz, you and I have been given sovereignty over our own lives. 
like Ahaz, you and I are people of incredible privilege. And I don't mean that they, we all get to rule a small kingdom in the Middle East for a few years. I mean, Ahaz was privileged because God himself sent him a message of profound hope. Ahaz was privileged with wise counsel, with an offer of divine protection, with a personal invitation to enter a relationship of love and trust and security, both temporal and eternal, by the Almighty God. You and I today are being offered the same privilege that Ahaz had. Now, like Ahaz, we often carry our own burdens of fear and responsibilities that threaten to overwhelm us. You may have been born into circumstances that demanded too much of you too soon in your life. Maybe you have mental or physical health problems that are too much for you. Maybe your family relationships are painful or out of control. Maybe you feel small, vulnerable, helpless, and you sense the eyes of predators, physical or spiritual, upon you. Maybe, like Ahaz, you and I have mistaken the humility of God for weakness. Maybe we have been tempted to dismiss the promises of God as unrealistic and impractical and too good to be true. Maybe we have already made dangerous compromises, foolish decisions, misplaced our trust. And because the Lord disciplines those he loves, maybe we have already suffered the consequences of those decisions in our lives. Maybe the things that we trusted would strengthen us have brought us nothing but affliction. Brothers and sisters, if there is any part of your life that currently fills you with fear, if there is any arena in your experience that looks like a forest hewn down, and especially if you have been a participant in your own devastation, hear the word of hope today. The scene of devastation is the setting for the coming of the Lord and the promise for all who put their hope in him today. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The Lord has sent us a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And any foolish or fearful or sinful decisions that we have made can simply become the prelude of our redemption. Sometimes we're the victim and sometimes we're the perp. Whether we are a dumb cow or a vicious wolf, it is not too late to trust in this man under whose reign we will all be redeemed and transformed and made fit to live on his holy mountain where none will hurt or destroy. The king is coming. 
May the Lord God give us eyes to see and ears to hear and the courage to place all our trust in him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.